Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you are. And thank you for joining us. We're keeping it real with Leonard Peikoff. And I am joined by James Valiant. James, how are you doing on this perfect day? Perfectly. My perfect brother. Uh, I trust I'm, you are you are equally perfect and doing perfectly. I'm perfect and getting better. Uh -huh. <laughs> We've got to play that clip. Must. Leonard Peikoff's radio show. Is perfection possible? Caller says, perfect, but getting better. Contradiction, right? Can't be better than perfect. We're going to straighten all of that out today. Folks, if you listened last week, you know we, we left a question off. And the reason was, because we got toward the end of the show, and it's a question that just is going to lead us to, well, a perfect conversation. I want you <laughs> to join us in the chat. I want to see your questions. I want to see your comments in the chat. I especially want to see you support the Ayn Rand Center UK. Make your questions stand out with a super chat. Hit that little dollar sign at the bottom. Put a couple dollars, a few pounds, or a lot on your question. Your questions deserves to stand out. That would be perfect, too. James, again, we had a great conversation last week, discussed, well, four of the five questions that you gave us. If anybody missed that one, they've got to watch it later. But on question number five, let me jump right in, because this is great, but challenging and valuable for those of you listening. Get this, question number five, question number one for today. Where can a young person, desperate over the state of the world and with no heroes, find hope and solace? This question was asked in July of 2008. It's now 15 years later. Are things more hopeful? Do we find more solace? Or is there some question about those words, hope and solace? James, any thoughts before I read part of Leonard's answer? Well, first, the question just tears my heart out. Here is a young person feeling really utterly hopeless. And uh, it sounds like great despair coming from, you know, someone who should be at the start and the dawn of life where all of the hopes and possibilities of life are stretching out in front of that person. And here's a young person saying, where can I find any positive values, any hope, any light in this dark tunnel I find myself in? When I hear a young person say something like that, I know that something has happened. It's not normal. A young person should feel enthusiasm and hope and excitement about what lays before them uh, in life. And here you've got a young person who doesn't feel that. And there's something corrupt about our culture, something corrupt about philosophy that could make a young person at the dawn of life not have all that enthusiasm, optimism, and anticipation that really, I don't, I don't mean to say that I'm any better off or live in a better culture than this this kid but i when i was a young person i was full of enthusiasm and hope and optimism about the possibilities of my life it energized me when i hear a young person say something like this doesn't it kind of melt your heart that a young person should be at the at the beginning of their life full of all this hope and expectation is feeling like that 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 kind of is kind of soul crushing almost to hear the question itself that's my only comment it's a great comment to make. I know people in the philosophy community who would jump right onto the question and say, oh, you're wrong for feeling that way. And, you know, things are much better than you realize. And no, you're absolutely right. I will uh, steal a line from David Byrne and say, well, how did I get here? That's what we want to know is how did this poor young person come to feel this way? Right. Right. Leonard Peikoff started off his answer saying, well, here's one I very much want to answer. It's from a youngster who is in great pain, who is desperate over the state of the world and says at one point, I have no idea where to turn. It's a question that different people ask in various ways. You know, we've all, we've all had some version of that. And Leonard Peikoff says, I think you have to start by saying you find it primarily only in yourself, not in heroes. Well, perhaps heroes in art, but not heroes in life. No matter how bad the world, as long as we're not enslaved totally, you still can choose some kind of creative work and you can still find love. If Ayn Rand could do it, well, you can do it too. It's not common. It's not easy, but it's possible. And today you have computers to help you out. And, and then we can get into, well, the wording of the question. So let me do that real quick. Leonard Pigoff says, you say you want to find hope and solace. Well, hope is improper. Hope means you really want something, but you're waiting for somebody to bring it along. It's a passive emotion. Assuming you don't have a terminal illness, well, you're too young to despair. 
I grant you, uh, excuse me, I grant you that to be all alone is a very difficult plight, but I think there are enough ways to find others, like objectivist groups or reasonable friends, where you can live to some extent in the kind of world that would make you feel less alienated from everybody. You have to remember that it's not true that everybody is either a hero or a villain. Most people have good elements and bad elements. You get through life and even enjoy other people to the extent that you focus your relationship on what's good about them and keep away as far as possible from what's bad. Uh, let me unquote there for a moment. And, you know, James, we've talked about how there are a lot of good people in the world. And 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 even, I would go further than Leonard Peikoff does and say there are real heroes in real life. People we admire, read, read biographies of great people and even mixed people. Uh, Steve Jobs comes to mind. Uh, the same author just did, Elon Musk. People with real, not just virtues, but heroism. And yet they're mixed cases. And as Dr. Pigoff says, yeah, you've got to separate out the good and the bad, but you've got to appreciate the good. What do you, what do you think of that? I did have heroes in my life when I was a young person. I think my dad was a hero to me, for example. <laughs> and it was my dad, you know, when I, when, when I was growing up, was he a complete objectivist? By no means, by no means. Did he, was he a human being like the rest of us trying to do the best he could? Absolutely. But in that sense, my dad, whatever disagreements I had with him at the time, I would say was morally perfect <laughs> for, for, for all his continued growth and struggles and misunderstandings about things. And I had a great dad, a smart dad, mind you. And that, but that's a rare thing. That's a rare thing. I'll give you another example. 40 years ago, I took Understanding Objectivism Live in New York City with Dr. Leonard Peikoff. And he asked us to concretize, you know, he's getting us over rationalism. So he's trying to get our high abstractions connected to concretes so that we, you know, don't have floating abstractions. And he said, use your emotions, use your personal experience. And he said, give me example. Then the concept, he said, give me an example of a hero. My hand shot up and I said, Leonard Peikoff. And it brought the house down. Everyone kind of laughed. Leonard kind of laughed. I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh because Leonard Peikoff has been a hero to me. So you say, are there real heroes in this world? And he kind of discounts that, you know, most people are mixed bags. They really are. Is Leonard Peikoff a hero to me? Yeah. Was he an inspiration to me? Yeah. I was lucky even to know him and he's still around folks, uh, for, but I was, I was lucky to know him pretty well for decades and they were heroes to me, my dad, and Leonard Peikoff. Now, what if you don't have that? What if you don't have a personal exposure to heroes, um, to people who really are heroes, even though they're human beings? And that's what we get to with perfection here. Um, that's a rough spot to be in. Maybe in literature you can find it. He's right. Uh, uh, but then again, they're abstractions. They're stylized artistic creations. They're not real human beings either. Um, and yeah. I was never going to be Howard Rourke. I knew that. I didn't want to be an architect. I don't have orange hair. I don't even have some of the attitudes Howard Rourke has about things. Um, and yet I knew that that kind of independence was what I wanted for myself, the best part of myself that I could strive for. And in that sense, fictional heroes can serve a vital role as a model for what can be. But what do you do if you're in a desert around you? And what has created this desert around this poor young person, why it's bad philosophy. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention about Leonard's answer here is about hope. You know, Christianity claims hope is a virtue, but of course, hope as such is no such thing. It's an emotional state, it's a passive state. Hope doesn't say I'm doing anything about it. Hope doesn't say, well, yeah, we can improve the situation by doing X, Y, and Z, or this is what you should do if you want to improve the situation. No, it's saying, well, I'm just hoping. You know, it's like the metaphysical versus the man-made. All we can do about the metaphysical kind of is hope. <laughs> when it comes to the man-made, we can and should take action. Uh, but uh, hope is really not a virtue at all. It's an emotional state. 
Uh, you, you, people should not be trying to find emotional comfort in a hopeless world. And that's what hope really strikes one as assuming. This is a hopeless world. It's a virtue for you to maintain a positive attitude in that against all this hopelessness, which again plugs in to the reason why we're in this desperate state, why a young person would and could possibly feel this. They have been taught that they are rotten by nature. They have been taught that moral perfection is impossible. They have been taught in effect that virtue is impossible. They have been taught by Christianity that they are rotten by nature, that the day doesn't go by that they don't sin, that they are corrupt, and uh, basically what you need to do is grovel beg for forgiveness for your sins, acknowledge that you're, you know, depraved, and try and do your best to give up this life so you can get into the next. Or they've been taught by Immanuel Kant, who tells them basically what they have to do is shove aside every personal interest, if necessary, to do their duty based on some abstract argument that he has about work, what duty is. And so their loyalty has to be to this abstract duty. And the only way to really prove your virtue is if you let your family die in the burning home, but the home next door, you go help try and help the strangers. Oh, then and only then would you even know you're virtuous, according to Kant. Okay, that's monstrous. Take the, I'll take out the other side of things, the so-called utilitarian practical arguments. <laughs> Pragmatists are unprincipled on purpose but on principle. They're unprincipled on principle. So screw principles as far as they're concerned. How could you ever obtain self-esteem? There's no such thing in effect as perfection or take utilitarians. Every time I take a sip of coffee, I've got to calculate the greatest happiness or the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. I've got to get out a slide rule and, and 10 calculators and a supercomputer just to find out if this sip of coffee that I'm about to have is a moral good or not. That's insane. No human being could do it. And so what all these people have done is they've given us a false alternative. Either you go by your whims and your emotions, and everybody knows that's not morally satisfactory. You can't feel good about yourself if you're a whim worshiper going that way. On the other hand, every other conception of ethics that has ever been offered since Aristotle, I think, was the last guy who might even come close on this. But every other system of ethics ever been offered by a serious philosophical system, whether it's Christianity, Kant, utilitarianism, are impossible to live up to. They're simply impossible to live up to. And if we're telling young people that virtue is impossible, in effect. And that's what we're saying when we say perfection is impossible, or we lay out an impossible uh, morality that no one could live up to or we blame people for their inherent nature, like their emotional nature or something, or having a sexual nature. If you feel guilt, innate guilt, because of what you are, uh, and that's again what per it, this notion that perfection is impossible is doing to people. It, let me put it this way. Hope is, as such is no virtue, but boy can philosophy instill hopelessness. Philosophy, religious philosophies, Kantian philosophy, all these other forms of philosophy have, in fact, made this poor kid's life hopeless. Philosophy is to blame here. Well, very good. And I, I especially appreciate your insight on hope as a virtue. <laughs> because because on the face of it, it's almost absurd, but you're right. In religion, hope is considered a virtue. Forcing yourself into that state of mind is a virtue. And we all know what happens when you force a mind. I do think of hope in the better sense or the better way that people use it as an aspect of benevolence, of the benevolent universe, of reminding yourself that, oh yeah, success is possible. I've seen it before. I have reason to believe it can happen again. So when you say to somebody, I hope you have a nice day, well, it's because people often have a nice day, and I'm hoping that that's what happens for you. It's not ungrounded to say, well, I hope things turn for the best when I have reason to believe they will. Oh, I'm a full believer in hope. I think hope is a better state than despair. Don't get me wrong, all other things being equal, I'd rather be hopeful for the situation. And I do wish you well. And if I wish you well, I'm hoping the best for you. But, but hope, hope, hope beyond a, reason as a virtue though? Yeah, and you see hope by <laughs> itself is no call to action. It doesn't tell me that I'm doing anything, what I should do, that I can do anything. 
Hope is sort of this passive state, altogether a passive state, which which is not implying any action on my part. I just sort of hope. And see, if you're a Christian and you think sin is inevitable, if you if you think you're rotten and corrupt by nature, all you're left with is this inner state that I hope I get to heaven despite my internal, my total innate depravity. All you're left with is this hope, is this possibility of hope. And so if you can't manage to eke out a little hope, despite your inherent depravity, I suppose it's some kind of psychological virtue. Uh, But that's the most I can say. (laughs) It sounds more like torture. If you have reasons to be hopeless and you're somehow trying to cling to a lie. That's it. Yes, that that would be not even hope as a virtue, but hope as a vice, or rather allowing Uh, yourself that state as a vice. Yeah. Hope can be a prologue to positive action. That is to say, my hopes have inspired me, and my hopes are so inspirational that I'm going to think about what to do and get off my butt and do it. Now, but that the hope part is just the emotional prologue. It's not the figuring out what to do and getting off my butt and doing it. Yes. <laughs> now it's bringing to mind the, the sense in which people use the word, the word faith as reason to believe whereas the literal definition of faith is the opposite of that. Right. So hope has the same yeah, right. risk of, depending on how you use it, it can exactly be a bad right. thing. Exactly right. So let me read a bit from the, the end of Leonard Pigoff's answer to this question, then I really want to jump to question number two, yeah. which is going to be, well, it's going to take us another step on our journey, but Leonard Pigoff does write, and apropos of what you were saying about Rourke, I think you should take as a model as far as possible Howard Rourke. He's not disgusted by the world. He ignores it. He pursues his goal. He doesn't look at each person and say, I can't stand this person. He's concerned with himself, his goals, his creativity. If, however, you focus to that extent on other people and their character and what they're doing wrong and make that the determiner of your life, you're literally being an altruist. You're putting the behavior of others above your own life qualities and requirements. It's hard to be an individualist and find yourself alone in the world as it is. But it is possible. People have done it. You know some people who have done it, even if only by the fact that they have written certain books. Well, that would be Ayn Rand and Leonard Peikoff himself, as well as the other great writers in history. Uh, whether you go back in time to Victor Hugo or or more contemporary, I like Robert Heinlein, for example. The the heroes are out there. There are, there are, there are, there are. The fact that I mean, just look around us. The world today is an amazing place. You know, yes. where you, you, we need perhaps is the perspective from where humans have come. I mean, uh, we are mostly all of us descended from cannibals and people who engaged in human sacrifice. (laughs) You know, human progress, the capacity of the human mind is an astonishing thing. And if you look at the context of where we come from, you're telling me Aristotle wasn't a superhero? I mean, you may as well put a red cape fluttering behind him with a big S on it (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. And let me do more than that. Here was a sincere Christian from 800 years ago by the name of Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to call him a hero. I'm going to call him a serious hero because of the consequences of his uh, efforts. Uh, People who don't even agree with objectivism can be heroes. Aristotle was not perfect. He made mistakes. Thomas Aquinas certainly, or an objectivist, would have definitely have some big disagreements with Thomas Aquinas. And yet, just in the realm of philosophy, I regard those two guys as heroes, real darn heroes. I'd even include men like John Locke in the, on the list of philosophical heroes who gave us the world. And look at the, every other field. Look at science. You're telling me that the courage of a Galileo or a Kepler or the, the, the commitment to figuring out the world of a Isaac Newton or, you know, in the world of science, a Darwin, Uh, These guys, for whatever disagreements, again, we objectivists may have with them, obviously these men, again, I'd want to put a red cape behind them fluttering in the breeze because they're heroes who gave us the modern world that we have today, which is not the world of the cavemen of 50,000 years ago. Uh, And so, and I owe so much to these men. Of course they're heroes. Of course they're art. You point out the great artists, of course. I look at Michelangelo and 
I am in awe. I read Cyrano de Bergerac. I am blown away with a metaphysical experience. Uh, these men obviously had the souls of giants. Um, and we can get incredible inspiration from the actual. Now, are super great achievements rare? Yes. And I have named some super great achievers. <laughs> there are more than that, though. But use them. I mean, I know that I could never match the intellectual achievements of an Aristotle or an Ayn Rand. I really have to know that about man's, like Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> On the other hand, to the extent that I can understand and do my very best to live up to the, the best elements that they've taught me, I myself can achieve this notion, this feeling of moral perfection, this real feeling of complete self-esteem. Um, do I have to match their achievements to do that? No, I do not. But they can be models for me. They can be inspirations for me. Um, they, they may be rare, but the, as Aristotle said, the excellent is always the rare. Yes. In fact, I'm going to bring up Spinoza's quote similar to that. But before we're done, but I do want to say hi to uh, Audrey Lee, who is in the chat and mentioned she would be watching the show today. I am glad you're here. And you're right. Sometimes someone admires can be a hero. You know, James, you're bringing up great examples from history. I can go right back to, you know, less than 100 years. I think um, Watson and Crick and oh, you know, yeah. the, the double it's helix and DNA. Double helix, DNA. Or recently, you know, Ishino and, and Jansen and CRISPR and... And you can go to the business side and you can Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, even in some ways, Elon Musk, or you can go to sports, you know, Audrey mentions athletes, or, or you can go to music, you can go to so many domains. So yes, yes, the heroes are out there and they're in literature. I always say, I don't, I don't want to literally be Howard Rourke, but I want to be my version of can Howard I, Rourke. Can I say something else? Please. You have the courage, the backbones and the brains the, the willingness to question everything, the, the, the person who takes on the effort of thinking about hard questions. That is to say, if you're a serious student of Ayn Rand and you're a sincere student of Ayn Rand, let me just toss this out. You're a hero. You're a hero in this culture. All my friends out there, to that extent, you are heroes. You are exceptionally virtuous. Let me just say that. You know, you're getting exactly where I want to go. Let me let me do the question number two here, because because it's a bit of a journey and it's an important one to take. Question number two. Now, this one's not in the book, but it was in the same podcasts from which the book was compiled. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to have our producer play the audio version of this one. Question oh, this is great. Two, I have friends Get that share hear. my atheism. Well, let's hear Leonard Pigoff in his own words do that. I have friends that... Uh share my atheist position and friends who are devoutly religious. Uh, what is common to both groups is that they share my value system. And my value system is the pursuit of moral perfection. Is this consistent with objectivism? No. You can be friends with religious people on other grounds, depending on what they're like, but you cannot be on the grounds of what you are stating. Moral perfection means full compliance with a specific moral code. And it is not a value in itself apart from what that code is. A morally perfect man totally embodies a certain code. If he totally embodies a corrupt code and you hold the opposite code, that is the opposite of a friend because it's the opposite of your values. It would have to mean you and the medieval saints who live in the desert and drink laundry water, and because it's evil to quench your thirst, uh, are going to be friends because you both want moral perfection. Now, moral perfection has no uh, meaning there. You could just as well say, I'm going to be friends with a Nazi who strives for moral perfection. And there were such there were girls, for instance, in the Nazi breeding homes who prayed that uh, they would have a great deal of pain when they gave birth to so that they could feel and show their uh, passion to sacrifice for the Fuhrer. That's as close as you could get to a perfect uh, uh, Nazi, but that is not 
what I regard as an objectivist basis for friendship. Right. And the point there, again, is yes, ideas matter. The standard matters. You're a perfect, well, a perfect what? A perfect what? A perfect monster? You know, it's like the word extremism. It really, I mean, you, you know, perfect has a you know positive but impossible to achieve connotation. You know, extremism has a negative connotation because you're extreme. But in both senses, they're really empty until you know what the values underlying. Are you extremely virtuous, extremely heroic, extremely good, extremely rational, extremely honest? Those are all good things. Similarly with perfect, are you a perfect Nazi? A perfect Nazi is a nightmare of a human being. <laughs> okay, the per perfection and concepts like that assume a set of values. Um, Christian values, okay, I, I'm just going to say it. Christian values are evil. They're monstrous. They tell you to surrender your life. They tell you money is sex. Ambition on earth is uh, evil. Uh, money is evil. Sex is evil. You're physically uh, corrupt by your very nature. Uh, lust in your heart or anger is already a sin. You are in desperate need of salvation, you miserable, corrupt sinner, is what they're saying. So overcoming this to the extent that I deny my body and become, say, some celibate monk and some hermit in some monastery. That's perfect by Christian standards, or the closest you can get it. I would add here, Christianity does insist that moral perfection is impossible, is impossible. So you're already screwed. I mean, there's no way you're going to get self-esteem if you're attempting to even be a morally perfect Christian. Uh, but you know something? If I really believed in Christianity, if I believed that there was this eternity uh, the, this eternal life yawning out before me of thousands oh, yeah. of infinite life. I could knock out 80 or 90 years of, of, of Christian celibacy on this planet. No problem. No problemo. If I really honestly believed in Christianity, I would be just the ideal Franciscan monk or something if I really believed it if I really believed it. But being as close as you can to being a Christian turns you into a self-destructive monster. Someone who's thrown away his life on earth. Someone who is willing to become an agent of mystical evil. Frankly, that's what you become if you're a perfect Christian or the closest that Christianity actually allows us. But like I say, Christianity doesn't even allow for moral perfection. I'd have to add that to, to, to Leonard's answer here too. And so it's you're, you cannot escape unearned guilt in Christianity. You are under the, the weight of an impossible guilt that you can never, ever overcome, except by totally recognizing your dependency and surrendering your entire life to Jesus Christ and his unearthly message. Right. <clears throat> Now, how many religious people do we know who say, well, I, I don't take it that way? You know, they're kind of the American version of Christianity yes. <laughs> or religion in general. And th that brings to mind for me, well, you have We the Living. You have, you know, not all the communists are the, the Pavel Sveryovs. You've got Andrei Taganov, the great man, the great hero. Well, what happens, though, if you are a great man, a great hero, enormous integrity, courage, bravery, and your ideal is a corrupt system? People think, yeah, I want to be more like Andrei Taganov. Do you remember what happens to Andrei Taganov? And not just at the end of the story, but throughout and especially his discovery of what was really going on there. So, yes, I, I, I don't think I could agree with Leonard Peikoff more. More than that, um, yeah, it's well, there's not just Andre a matter of ideals, but what are your ideals? Exactly. What a great example. There's Andre, who's really in some one sense, what the, maybe the most interesting character in that book. Here he is a misguided idealist, but he can't escape the consequences of being devoted to a rotten set of ideas. Uh, it, it, is he filled with all, like you point out, all kinds of virtues and trying to live up to those ideals? Yes, he is. But look at the horrific tragedy he causes in Russia and in his own, the total disaster of his own life, because he devoted himself to wrong ideals. He tried to be the perfect communist. He became as close as someone could be, at least at some phase in his life, to being the perfect communist. And look what it gets him the destruction of his values, the destruction of everything that he really loves, starting with Kira. Now, wow, there's a profound lesson there, isn't there? Yeah. Yes. 
it's interesting because there are people who claim that Ayn Rand was simplistic in her writing. And one of the ways was, well, all the good people, they're all good. And all the bad people, they're all bad. Her comparisons were so much more complex than that. A character like Andrei Taganov, uh, again, in, in some ways, you think he's even a greater man than Leo Kovalensky. He's the one I'm rooting for. I want him to turn around. No, enormously complex character. Now, there, there's a limit to that. She tried in Atlas Shrugged to write another very ideological, a religious character. A priest was going to be an Atlas Shrugged, but a priest with virtues you know, who had all the basic virtues of the heroes in the novel and eventually, you know, makes a decision. And she she writes in her personal notes, it just ultimately didn't work. She couldn't do it. She, Andrei Taganov was as far as you could get with that. And she was so good at writing these mixed, complex characters, but there's only so far you can go with, yeah, I'm religious and I believe in heroism and virtue and reason. And She couldn't make it believable, she said. If yeah. we, when you read her notes for Alice Rudd and you read her correspondence on this, it's very fascinating. She did. She had a working character who was a priest. She was trying to work out this sincere Christian guy who was devoted to morality, at least the, some basics of, of the objectivist morality, and see work him out. And she said, "It just, I just couldn't make it believable." believable. Uh, but even in Atlas Shrugged, though, even that some of the really superheroes of Atlas Shrugged are still learning. Dagny Taggart and Hank Reardon have to, lessons to learn, lessons to learn, and they and Ayn Rand always found the conflict between heroes far more interesting than the conflict between, say, the supervillain and the superhero. That's that's pretty simple, boring, and straightforward as far as she's concerned. Much more interesting are people, the hero versus people of mixed premises, like in yes. The Fountainhead, Howard Rourke versus Gail Wine and her Dominique, who have mixed premises. In one case, it's a tragedy. In the other case, the person learns and grows and has a happy ending. But even in Atlas Shrugged, the conflict is primarily between John Galt and Dagny Taggart. <laughs> the the yes. two top heroes of the whole darn book. So Ayn Rand yeah. always found it much more interesting to put heroes in conflict than simply to have a hero-villain conflict. Yeah, I think her critics would have been happier if if some of the critics or some of the characters who weren't necessarily evil or necessarily wholly good, just you know, decent people like the rest of us. We needed a whole story about Dan Conway. He was a good guy, but he kind of he wasn't great, and he washed out. It's not a story. Well, There's not a novel in look there. Look at that. Ayn Rand does address that in a hundred different ways with Cheryl Taggart, oh, or with Eddie yes. Willers, or with the wet nurse, people who are struggling and learning and trying to grow. And if anything, someone like the wet nurse or Cheryl, they're victims of the rotten culture around them and bad ideas they've been taught. In The Fountainhead, a real tragic character comes to mind. Now, she may have participated in her own... Catherine Halsey, the niece of Ellsworth Dewey. She comes to a tragic end. She may have been complicit in her own tragic end, but there too, she's a victim of ideas. She's been swamped with these evil ideas of her uncle Ellsworth that have completely destroyed her life. Um, she doesn't exhibit, say, the virtues uh, perhaps of Cheryl Taggart or, or Eddie Willers, but nonetheless, she is a mixed bag who goes down a dark path as opposed to a mixed like Cheryl Taggart, or as opposed to a mixed bag who at least ends up in a positive way like the wet nurse, say in Atlas Shrugged. But Ayn Rand is showing all kinds of examples of people who are mixed bags or victims of the ideas of the rotten culture around them. Um, it's, it's, she's it's a, a very point. complex writer. I'll be talking about that tomorrow on, on Life on Earth on my show tomorrow, um, because I want to consider that question of, you know, do, do these people really want to live? And those middle cases, those, those are the really hard cases of the you know, Cheryl Brooks, who believes in the good and believes in virtue and wants it, you know, versus Tony, the wet nurse who doesn't believe in virtue, doesn't believe in any of it, except he's still young enough that deep down, he's still looking for, for the truth, for reality, for he's open to answers. And the scene that always gets tears from my eyes is the final scene with the, because he learned, but he yeah. learned late. Is this and what it's like to want to live, to want something badly? Exactly. It's just it, one of the most powerful scenes in literature you'll ever read, yeah. uh, trust me, is the final scene with the wet nurse and Hank. Yeah. I may have to leave that out of my talk tomorrow. I'm not sure I can read it without choking up. But I what, know, what I know. I'm choking up right just thinking there. about it, Robert. <laughs> yes. Now, 
it's interesting in 2023 because of course we we're not left wondering well what were the answers what were the right answers fortunately philosophy has progressed far enough now that Ayn Rand has written her works and Leonard Peikoff has written his explanations of her work so that we don't have to be left wondering what what, what was the answer I was always looking for right right but some it's of these concepts difficult. are hard the moral perfection is difficult it it's, is it's now, it's great. I'll point out that there was an earlier episode on the Ayn Rand Center UK, who y'all should be putting in some super chats to. Let's see a few dollars come in to support this work. There was an episode on the Daily Objective going back to episode 658. I've got a link in my links on uh, Facebook, but I think our producer will put that in. The episode was called Psychological Perfection. And that covered some of this ground from the psychological perspective. Rucka was interviewing Gina Gorlin, a great objectivist psychologist. Folks should watch that if you're wondering, well, but psychology makes it hard. But we're not talking so much about psychology today. Let me jump to question number three. We've got another excerpt to play for you. Because Leonard Peikoff, before the Leonard Peikoff podcast, when he was producing the Leonard Peikoff show, his radio show, so you'll actually hear a caller, in, a caller to the radio show here, did an episode called, Is Perfection possible. This is going back to 1996. It seems like only yesterday that Leonard Pigoff was doing that radio show, but no, this is October 1st, 1996. And just an excerpt from the show. It was, you know, he does a whole hour, but uh, just a couple minutes. From 27 years possible. ago, ladies and gentlemen, 27 years ago. Yes. And of course, as you'll, you'll hear this, it will apply to everything we're talking about today. Our producer will play that for us. Perfection can't be defined as omniscience. You can't say you've got to know everything to be perfect because it's impossible to know everything. But as long as you know what's open to you, I say you're morally perfect. What do you say, Bob, in Hollywood, California? Welcome to the show. Well, I, I agree with you 100%. I think perfection is possible. Good for you, Bob. I don't think I've achieved it. Why not? Huh? Why not? Well, I, I I think I've been taught differently. Uh, I think sometimes, as we're, I think most people in our in our world are, are taught the opposite that perfection is not possible. I think we're all taught that. Yes. And I think that I've been taught that, and it's in my subconscious, maybe. Well, how does it affect your behavior? How does it make you imperfect? Well, my behavior is pretty good, uh, um, but I need a lot of work in that area. And I'm working on it. I go to a therapist, I see. and I'm trying to develop myself psychologically and intellectually. Seriously. I work very hard. Well, listen, what what is wrong with this, Bob? You tell me. You are really trying to improve yourself and your psychology. You're seeing a therapist. You're, you're giving it your all. After all, we all have some kind of legacy from crazy parents since it's a crazy civilization. So nobody is brought up decently. We're doing, but if you truly are doing your best to understand and resolve your problems, why can't you say, morally speaking, I'm 100%. I'm perfect. I'm giving it all I've got. What else can you want? And still well, I think I should say that to myself. Well, say it. All right, I will. I'm perfect. <laughs> Let's yes, hear sir. it. No, no, say the words. Well, I'm perfect. Okay, I'm trying my best. No, don't qualify. Just no. say it. Say it and be proud. Well, I am of your perfect. Effort. I am perfect because I adhere very much to reason. Okay. And I am a perfect person. Uh, and I have a few flaws which can be corrected. I think it's possible to be efficient. Okay, Bob, I, I think you did a good job of coming out of the closet there and saying your real opinion, and we need more people have the courage to stand up and say, I'm doing everything I can, and I get credit. I take pride in down with this nonsense that I'm a weak and a helpless, worthless sinner. <laughs> you know, uh, can I just say I something? Remember that. I still remember hearing the full version of that one. And can I just say episode. something here? Please. That is the Leonard I knew. Yes. I have known. That is everything you need to know about. Well, talk about getting me choked up again. That is the Leonard I knew and know. He is benevolent. He is, and he's constantly doing that when, you, when you're interacting and 
with him on a one-on-one -on -one basis. He's getting you to see something that you, that now we used the word hope before. I cannot tell you the number of times I ask questions in such a way that I would walk away from his answer feeling a new sense of hope, a new sense of possibility, a new sense of self-esteem, where he made me feel that, yeah, this world is open to my heroism, open to my highest value achievements. What are you doing about it? No, of course there are circumstances. You may not achieve every concrete goal you want, but what are you doing to achieve them? And it's that that's going to give you the self-esteem. And guess what? You can achieve some values. You're never going to get those values if you don't reach for them. And if you're reaching as best as you can, you're perfect. And guess what? You're going to get those values. Okay. And let me also come out of the closet. I think I'm morally perfect. I'm getting better. I'm getting better and working at it. I'm working at it all the time. And guess what? It's the fact that I'm working at it constantly that makes me perfect. No, I don't. I'm not constantly lashing myself for every little, you know, error of knowledge I make. I'm not constantly whipping myself into, you know, I'm not saying that I can't reap the rewards, relax and have a lovely date night with my wife or stop and enjoy the music that I really love. No, of course, that, I don't have to be a this, this constant, you know, inhuman, you know, 24-7 uh, slave to morality. That's not the vision of objectivist morality at all. But look, volition is the only thing that you can get any kind of credit or blame for. You cannot blame me for having two eyes. You cannot blame me for being born in the 20th century. Those are things that I had absolutely no control over. It makes no sense to praise or blame someone for things that are outside their volitional control. The entire field of ethics, the entire field of ethics only pertains to your choices, to things within your capacity to control. If it is outside of your capacity to control, if you couldn't have done differently, if it's an inherent part of your nature, it cannot make you imperfect, not even slightly, not even a little bit, not even a taint. The fact that you have lust in your heart, which normal, physically healthy people all have sexual, uh, sexual nature, that does not make you corrupt like Christianity would have us believe. You cannot be blamed for something that is built into you, part of your nature, and non-volitional. And people are screwed up on this altogether. Philosophy is obviously to blame. But, and again, Aristotle and Ayn Rand appear to be the only ones who be, appear to be on the right page here. You can only be blamed for that which is within your control. If you are doing the best you can, doing the best you can... And I don't mean, like I say, some inhuman lashing yourself every day to work 24-7 so that you're completely... No, you're a human being with a whole set of complex needs. With a whole set of complex needs. You need to give yourself rest. You need to understand your context. Peacock brilliantly points out here, we all have childhoods. We all have mothers. We all have contextual contexts. Contextual context. Contextual psychologies built on our experiences as young people. We're, we all have a context in effect that we must deal with and overcome. That is not a moral issue. That's the given. That's what you were born and raised into. The question is, what are you doing with that? What are you doing with that? And as I say, you don't have to be an objectivist. You don't even have to be an objectivist to be morally perfect. No. Are you conscientious morally? Are you auntsy? For all of us, as we're growing up, we get these mid-level inductions. A little pitch for objectivism by induction, one of Leonard Peikoff's courses. We all get these mid-level inductions when we're young people that clue us into the importance of morality. I realize that if I have that, in order to earn your trust, I have to be honest. That breaking promises has negative consequences. So whatever the level of my mid-level or low-level induction about, say, honesty is. I've got some grip on morality, and whatever my honest grip on morality is, if I'm trying my best to live up to it, I am perfect. I am perfect. That's it. Full stop. Say it. Say it out loud to yourself. There are a whole lot. Now, it's rare. Again, I say that you have to have some degree of conscientiousness. 
If you're not working at it, you're not certainly not perfect. If you're not thinking through all the issues you should be, th- know you should be thinking through, if you're not putting your best efforts in where you know the effort is required, no, you're not perfect. It's not, it's not automatic. It requires that you, and guess what? Every time you look in the mirror, ladies and gentlemen, you know when you've fuzzed it, when you've cut a corner, when you've made a mistake. You look at yourself in the mirror and you know, hey, I didn't think that through. There have been times like that early in my life where I actually did that. And that's what corrected, helped me correct my moral character and get it onto a better footing. Perfection certainly requires serious effort, but it is possible. It is absolutely possible. I love this benevolence that you hear here in Leonard Peikoff. This is Leonard Peikoff telling people there are more perfect people out there than who realize it. There are a bunch of people out there who are morally conscientious to the extent they understand morality. And that's it. That is the sum and substance of moral perfection. Yes, it requires, in fact, moral perfection requires continuous growth. No one's ever going to be omniscient and, you know, know everything, get the big brass ring and that's it. I've got it. I know everything. I have no doubts about anything anymore. No, cut yourself slack for what you didn't know when you didn't know it and had no reason to know it. (laughs) Learning is not a sign of imperfection. It's part of your nature that you shouldn't blame yourself for. To grow morally, to learn philosophically takes effort. But if you're conscientious about that effort, give yourself the moral credit for doing that. People are constantly dissing <laughs> their actual achievements because, well, this is, I was, of course, I could do that. Of course, I took the effort to do that. But wow, that's not, you know, that's not real. Perfect. No, it is. It is, ladies and gentlemen, if you are conscientious about what you're doing, if you are honest about what you're doing, if you are trying to be rational, if you are trying to expand your knowledge constantly and apply it to your life and really apply it to your life consistently, yes, it takes a serious effort to be perfect. It's not automatic. This is a moral evaluation we're talking about here. On the other hand, like Dr. Peikoff says here, there are a whole lot more morally perfect people out there than realize it. And it's philosophy that's blinded them to their own virtue. Utterly blind. Now, I can think of nothing. If you want to say to me all the evils that philosophy has done, truly one of the most viciously evil things that philosophy has done is to convince people of their inherent corruption, their, in, their innate depravity. And that is disgusting to me, never allowing them to develop the self-esteem that they have earned, that they have earned. And one of the greatest evils of modern morality is that there's no system out there, except it seems to me objectivism, that actually acknowledges this and acknowledges that people who are doing their best and who are engaged in this constant quest for improvement and who are never, ever allowing themselves in evasion or hypocrisy when they know something is right. And that's possible, ladies and gentlemen. Those people should be, like Dr. Peikoff says here, stand up and admit it. You know, it's like at Alcoholics Anonymous being, my name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic. People should raise their hand and say, hey, my name is Robert Naser and I am morally perfect. How about the other side of that? The other side, come out of the closet is the way he put it, because that's the way it feels in a world that's telling humans that they're inherently corrupt for me to come out and actually say, no, I'm virtuous. No, please point out. If I did something wrong, please point it out to me. Where did I screw up? Thank you very much. I did the best under my in the context of my knowledge. I am a good person. Indeed, I am a perfect person if I'm consistent with that. That's that. Don't. I mean, think of how much self-esteem, pride, personal joy has been taken away. And think of how that affects everything else you do. When people go to work and they think, oh, okay, I'm just not perfect. I'm going to screw up again. They enter relationships with this, this, without a good heroic sense of self-esteem, if they are moral heroes. And guess what? Moral heroes can be ordinary people. Moral heroes can be truck drivers. You know, some of the greatest moral heroes I know are people who've overcome physical handicaps. Look at artist John Wass. What a hero! What a hero! 
He does great art as a great as a great artist, mind you. And look at where he came from. If he just for, coming from what he, the brittle bone disease that he's overcome, if he were even just a decent artist, I would say he was heroic if he was doing the best he can. But he's a great artist. He inspires me. Now consider that that is mega heroism, ladies and gentlemen, and it's more way more common than people give credit for all over the place. There are way more perfect people on this, morally perfect people on this planet than we ever give them credit for. And so I am privileged to know, Robert, it's only when you look at a mirror that you can really know if you're morally perfect. From my vantage point, you are morally perfect. And I am proud to say I am morally perfect in getting better. And I know human beings like you, who I believe to be morally perfect, good people and getting better all the time because they put the effort in. That, ladies and gentlemen, is perfection. Ah, can you imagine a more benevolent answer? I love the fact that we have Dr. Peacock's voice today. This is just a wonderful, heartwarming thing for me because, ladies and gentlemen, that is the Leonard Peacock I knew. This kind of a lover of life, this kind of benevolence, who's always trying to reach people, reach out to people and lift them up out of the mire of the darkness that philosophy has given them, the, the unearned guilt, the confusion, and bring them back into the light of the sunlight of a benevolent world where virtue is possible. That's the Leonard I know. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that made that excerpt uh, especially special. It's sort of an insider's voice. When he did his radio show, you felt like you were you were there with him. You you were an insider, not just hearing an outstanding lecture, but like you might hear him if you were in his living room or at a restaurant together. And the beginning of that answer, perfection can't be defined as you've got to know everything to be to be perfect, because it's impossible to know everything. But as long as you know what's open to you, I say you're morally perfect. Now, the same thing, and, and the reason I want to read that again, is that that applies to psychology as well. Per moral perfection can't mean, oh, yeah, I've resolved all of my psychological issues. You know, if you are facing some psychological challenges, whether from your childhood or from grade school or from other things that you've been through, if you experience you know, any form of alienation or depression or whatever challenges a lot of us go through at some point. That's not a moral slight against you. And the question isn't, you know, what are your burdens, but what are you doing? You know, bringing up John Wass is a great example of that. There's a man facing extra challenges, hasn't let him stop him. If he was a person with the strongest bones in the world and no handicaps at all, you would still say these are great right. things. But to see him overcome extra burdens is just one more reason to say, here is a great guy. Here is somebody I, I, I could learn from. I can be inspired by. I want to be a little more like him. I'm left in Let me give you another example. Uh, our, uh, uh, one of our new uh, uh, regulars on RQK broadcasts, a guy named Michael Leibowitz, who did a horrible crime when he was a younger person. If I were to evaluate moral perfection on the standard of, did you ever in your life, do you'd have to say, well, no, he's not morally perfect. Is moral perfection still available to him in a new state, in a new way of being? And when I think about the childhood that he overcame, the abuse and the violence that he was put up with from the time he was three, four, five years old, he overcame a social and psychological environment, again, in a heroic way. Did he make a bad turn at one point and end up in prison for a long time because of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he also had a psychology that made it, if you, I were to tell you about the, the chain beatings and the face cuttings that he saw from a toddler and the way his parents were constantly encouraging him to, to do violence, you would normally psychologically predict a negative outcome for him at all. Yeah, okay, he had to face the consequences of a really serious mistake. But when he faced of a serious moral mistake, but when he faced the his ability to face and overcome that psychological that psychological context that he had to overcome that made it nearly if you were to ask me as a former prosecutor someone with that background i would predict some kind of tragic outcome now here's someone who wasn't physically handicapped but had a childhood and a psychological background that made yeah. it almost inevitable 
the bad things were going to happen and his life was going to end up in some kind of tragedy. But he, he confronted with his own mistake, his, and he was aware it was a moral error. In that sense, he, if you look at his whole life, he's by no means morally perfect. On the other hand, is perfection still achievable for him now? Absolutely. And talk about heroically overcoming a psychological context. Our psychology, we all have psychologies. In fact, I'm going to back up and go further. In this modern corrupt world, there is absolutely no way you don't have psychological issues that you have to confront and overcome. There is no way. We all do. We all have psychologies. The question isn't whether I have some emotional issue I think I need to work on that makes me less happy or interferes with my proper functioning in life. Well, no, if it's like that, we have to deal with it. The question is how you're dealing with it. Yes. How you're dealing with it. That's on my topics to-do list because I do think that there is additional praise to be given to people who've overcome bigger challenges. And some some people in the objectivist community want to deny that. I hear it all the time that, oh, just because this guy grew up poor or challenged or whatever, you shouldn't give him any extra credit. Well, the funny thing is, he'd be the first one to say that. Don't give me any excuses. He doesn't want to bring up his childhood because he says, that's just an excuse. I could have and should have known better. Okay, Now, that shows the moral improvement that he's made right there. But the fact is, uh, even he doesn't appreciate sometimes the consequences of such what a horrific childhood. What it means to overcome obstacles. Exactly. Absolutely. How heroic that makes him for having done so. How rare that is. Yeah. How hard that is. And to give yourself the credit for making that change and those improvements, which took effort and time and introspection. Yes. And thought. That's, that's a conversation that needs to happen. But real it's quick, so- I've, got, I've got to give a shout out to Apollo Zeus, who did come, come through with the super chat. Thank you. He says, thank you for your work. Thank you for your super chat. We do appreciate the support, not just financially, but gives me the extra oomph to keep going too and to keep doing these things. The Ayn Rand Center UK does appreciate your support. Uh, Jamie Hernandez, maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, Jamie Hernandez. I think think Jamie Hernandez sounds more right to me because he's in with Mexican pesos. Thank you very much for your super chat. He says, I've been missing the live shows for a while. And now that I'm here, I wanted to show my appreciation with a couple dollars. I love these shows. Thank you. And then he's in again with another super chat and says, and an extra couple dollars dedicated to James. What he's saying is getting to the deepest of my heart. Thank you, James. Well, thank you, Jamie. Very much appreciated. Hey, James, you certainly gracias, deserve it. Gracias, mi amigo. Uh, you've touched my heart. Now, now. I told you this show would end up running a little long, but I've just got two more quotes I want to read from Leonard Peikoff. And they are both from one of my favorite essays and lectures that he gave at the Fort Hall Forum, Certainty and Happiness, Achieving Success in Thought and Action. Because at the end of the talk, very near the end, he says, happiness, though scarce, is no mistake. It's scarce because it is a culmination, which only an extraordinarily demanding cause moral and philosophical, can produce. And in this respect, this is Leonard Peikoff, I think Spinoza's famous observation is very apt. All things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. (laughs) But then Dr. Peikoff goes on. He says, in another respect, however, and this is Ayn Rand's unique perspective, to attain happiness so far from being extraordinarily difficult, is the simplest thing in the world. If she were here, she would say, all you have to do is live. Just as to attain certainty is the simplest thing in the world, because all you have to do is think. Unquote Leonard Peikoff. This idea that because moral perfection, that determination to always be in focus, to always think when thinking is required, to never evade and to never drift. When you put it that way, maybe it sounds kind of hard, but really, isn't that what you do all the time, all day, every day, when you are at your best? Isn't that just real life? You can see, the thing is, we we know it. We feel it from the inside and we see it with others. We see the person changing the subject, evading, 
the issue, uh, finding some other uh, activity to distract themselves. And you can see almost psychologically that that moral imperfection as they evade the, the burning question and they evade the uh, giant gorilla in the living room. <laughs> we can see it. We can see it. And it's that person who says, no, I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to consider that. I'm going to, and what implications does that have? Shouldn't I really be doing X because of this? It's thinking and having that the best of your thinking apply to your real life. If you're doing that consistently, that is the moral human being. And we all can see around us many examples of people who are not doing that. We know when they're cutting corners mentally and morally. We can see it all the time. And that, that is what perfection does not permit, does not permit. If you find yourself cutting mental corners and or being not living up to what you know, what you know is right, ladies and gentlemen, that is immoral. That is immoral. But distinguish errors of knowledge, as Leonard says. We're not, and we're never going to be omniscient. Knowledge is not automatic. It takes a heroic sometime effort to sometimes gain that new knowledge. Think of the moral knowledge that Ayn Rand added to the sum of human knowledge in the field of ethics. It took considerable thought and effort on her part just to make that discovery. Don't blame yourself if you don't understand ethics as well as Ayn Rand, but do your best to understand the best approach to ethics that you can. That's perfection. And try to live up to it. That's perfection. Yes. That's perfection. And we know it, ladies and gentlemen, because we know the choice. We know the choice when we're taking the responsible effort. We know the effort when we know the opposite, when we're evading, when we're changing the subject, when we're uh, dissembling for even to ourselves. All right. We're avoiding that look in the mirror. Ladies and gentlemen, that is imperfection. And you know it. You know it when you're looking in the mirror. You know it when you're look, thinking about yourself. You know you could have done better. You knew you cut that corner. You knew you evaded that fact you should have thought about. Yes, sir. It's not. And But that's the thing. We know it. We know it. In other words, the fact that you're perfection, perfect. No, I was responsible. No, I did put in the correct effort. I did the best I could. I was acting on all the knowledge I had available to me. Well, that's perfection, ladies and gentlemen, and never diss that. You can know it from the inside and give yourself the credit. When you said, I did the best I could, tell yourself, I was perfect. I am perfect. Don't be shy of that word. Otherwise, it's a meaningless anti-concept, like a magical elf or ghost or something or unicorn. It has absolutely no application to this world. If it is a real concept that means anything real, and if it has any kind of moral application, then it only applies to your choices and those choices made within the context of your knowledge. That's it. So the question is, are you working to expand your knowledge? Are you working to live up to? Your knowledge as moral knowledge as best as you've got it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the sum and substance of perfection. There's no more and no less to it. And give yourself the credit, the self-esteem, the pride, and the rewards. Reward yourself for your perfection because you deserve it. Let yourself feel the good consequences that came about from your virtue. You've earned it. And what I just dis what makes me disgusted at the philosophies of Christianity and Immanuel Kant is that they steal that. They steal that joy, that pride from each and every person who buys in for a nanosecond to their evil idea that humans are inherently corrupt. Yes. Well, I was going to give a caveat before my last quote, but I think you pretty much covered it there. Real quick, folks, we're on the Ayn Rand Center UK channel. In less than half an hour, the daily objective, we need a legal expert. We have a legal expert to discuss the question, what about bail? Isn't it unfair? Poor people can't afford bail. Rich people can. Should we eliminate bail? Well, that sounds ridiculous, but it's happening in places in the United States James, you are just the man to talk about that. Folks, in less than half an hour, Ayn Rand Center UK, join us for the Daily Objective. We are also having an episode of The Reality Show at 6 p.m., 1 o'clock Eastern. We were going to talk about several topics, including, well, Thomas Friedman is writing in the New York uh, Times again, and he wants us to stop normalizing Israel. There's no solution there until we accept 
a two-state solution. We will talk about that as well. But James, for our topic today, of course, you've given the great caveats and you've given a great uh, reminder that that guy in the mirror, look him in the eye and you can tell whether you are being your own honest, best self. Leonard Peikoff said at the end of the Q&A from that certainty and happiness talk, I've got to read, this was extemporaneous, not writing, but it's pretty right on. Listen to this. Leonard Peikoff says, remember that it is a very brave and difficult thing to accept a philosophy rather than, you know, what people market. In other words, really to accept certain fundamental ideas. It's a heroic undertaking to not be brought up on a philosophy, to be brought up with the daily mishmash. And then in your 20s or teens, try to untangle it and really integrate it and live by it. That is a daunting proposition. And it's a feat of heroism if you can do it. Close quote, Leonard Peikoff. James, you have told us, yeah, don't call yourself an objectivist and consider that a badge and then you don't actually have to do any good things. No, you really need to have integrity. But if you can do that, if you are doing your honest best every day to live by what you actually believe, that's perfect. As objectivists, there are we are disproportionately perfect. I was saying before how you don't have to be an objectivist to be morally perfect, and you don't. But think of it, ladies and gentlemen, think of your own courage. If you are trying to understand and live by the best moral ideas that you know of, you are superheroes out there, you all. In fact, I can think of hundreds of you right now who deserve to have that red cape fluttering behind you too. Couldn't have said it better myself. Folks, join us in 23 minutes on the ARC UK channel and next week for another episode of Keeping It Real. James, thank you so much. Thank you all out there.